Well, if you've been with us the last three weeks, you'll know that we have been kind of working through the, the latter part of Luke chapter 10, which begins in, in verse 25 to 28, which talk about uh, the, the two great commands that we find in the Old Testament, which kind of summarize all the law and the prophets. If you were to crystallize it, if you were to boil it all down to two statements, they would be summarized in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus will be answering the question that the lawyer asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so the answer to that question, it's found in those two commands, bring the significance of that statement, those statements to us, to help us realize, do they matter? And of course they do, if you want eternal life. Then Jesus will begin to describe, well, what does a neighbor look like? He'll describe it in a story called the Good Samaritan. This Good Samaritan who helps this unsuspecting, unfortunate traveler who's making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets assaulted by some robbers along the way. He shows to him compassion. He shows him mercy, which is a picture of God's love and compassion in mercy to the world. The next story that we come in, in contact with is the story that we're going to be dealing with today. It's, it's the last segment of Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38 and taking us to the, the end of the chapter, from verse 38 to 42. It really becomes the object lesson, as it were. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbor? How does this look? What does it look like? How is it put on display? And you're familiar with the story, perhaps. Martha and Mary invite Jesus over for dinner. And uh, it starts to go really well, but then it starts to turn. And we're going to look at that this morning. But we see the, the importance of hospitality. As Martha will invite Jesus and his disciples into the home. And so it becomes kind of the... The question for us, as we, as we look at this text, maybe the, the question that we, that we enter with is, how important is hospitality? What place does hospitality have in the Christian life? Should it be pri a priority for us, or just a kind of a secondary kind of thing? Or does it become the heartbeat, the center of how to work out the Christian life, how, how to do the things that God has called us to do in terms of really loving God and really loving our neighbor. The word for hospitality combines two Greek words. The first word is phileo, which is the word brotherly love. We get the word Philadelphia from, from this Greek word phileo. And then it's coupled with the word xenos, which is the word for stranger or, or for foreigner. And so you put them together, you get brotherly love or brotherly affection for a stranger. That's what we're called to. And so in the, in the immediate passage after love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, now we're getting the outflow of that in terms of loving with brotherly affection your stranger, a foreigner. Somebody that you don't know, somebody who's not necessarily in your circle. This is, this is kind of the, the heartbeat of, of Martha and Mary in terms of ministering to Jesus. We find specific mention of this word hospitality four times throughout the New Testament. 
In Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13, we see how integral this expression of stranger-like love or brotherly love or affection to strangers, how it plays out and how integral it is to not only loving one another, but notice loving God. They're intertwined. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The New King James translates this, given to hospitality. That you have a proclivity towards this kind of lifestyle. You're given to that kind of life, that kind of expression of kindness and love to others. It just, it just kind of fills you up with, with that kind of, of outflow of love for others. That's what Paul is talking about here. Notice it's attached to serving the Lord. You can't serve the Lord without having a heart for people. That's what Paul wants you to understand. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, Peter will attach this important command of hospitality to the end times. And, and, and we believe we're, we're living in, in those end times where, where Christ's return is imminent. So, so, so we need to pay attention. We need to listen up because this is what we're called to. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's a good word. <laughs> it's sometimes easy for us to, to show hospitality. It's sometimes hard for, for those Martha-like people like myself that when you extend yourself in terms of hospitality, it's really easy to grumble along the way. Well, you need to have the right attitude along with the right action. Wouldn't you... You shouldn't be surprised then to find that, that the mark of leaders, of spiritual leaders, will be those who show Christ-like hospitality to others. We find it in both the passages that, that speak about elders or pastors or shepherds. This is, this is one of the, the characteristic features of their ministry. Titus chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 says this, For an overseer as, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 will echo this when he says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Why is this so important? Why is hospitality Brotherly affection for strangers. Why is this so important? Well, it's so important because it is the heart of God. It is what Jesus did in coming to earth. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we, we see this posture of hospitality in terms of, of welcoming relationship, being in and among strangers so that, so that Jesus can convey love from the Father. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus dwelt among us. That's the word for tabernacle. That's the word for he pitched a tent, meaning he wanted to set up residence so, so he could personally be in company with you, in company with the world. 
That was Christ's posture. That was his heart. And, 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 it, and it harkens back to this tabernacling that happened all the way back at Mount Sinai when through the Mosaic law, uh, God established this tabernacle that would be among the people of, uh, of Israel and this tabernacle would be the physical presence of God among his people. That's why Jesus came. As we've been looking through and working through the gospel of Luke, we have maybe not drawn attention to this, but we see the heart of Jesus as it relates to, to being among the people, especially in their homes. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is at Simon Peter's house. In Luke chapter 5, he's at Matthew's house. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is hosting a meal for 5,000 men, maybe as many as 20,000 people. In Luke 10, Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house. In Luke 11, he's at a Pharisee's house. In Luke chapter 14, he's sharing a meal with another Pharisee and a a group of lawyers. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is uh, criticized for his companionship in eating. You would even eat with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is sharing a meal with the disciples, this Passover meal. Jesus prioritized fellowship. And fellowship so often happened around the dinner table. So that in the, in the ministry of Christ, where we, where we see his, his earthly ministry from chapter 4 all the way up until the, the Passover week, Jesus is in a home or talking about feasts 13 out of 16 chapters. That's how important this is. It's the heart of Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to impart truth. Jesus came to impart a life. It only happens one way. As we are sharing life and sharing time, sharing space with the people around us. And that's what we're going to see in this final segment of Luke chapter 10. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible... Uh, Grab the Pew Bible ahead of you. We're on page 869. Page 869. The the heading is Danger Ahead. (laughs) And the reason why this is dangerous is because this is going to confront us in two different ways. First, it's going to confront us in the area of hospitality. Um, Those of us who don't feel like we have the gift of hospitality... Those of us who, who are kind of introverts, and I, I would consider myself an, an introvert, and, and I don't like to necessarily extend myself, and, and so this is, this is hard word for us, because we, we want to do the work behind the scenes, we want to get things done, we, we like the kind of Martha, Martha-like ministry, we want, to, we want to check the boxes, and we want to do the right thing, but um, when it comes to inviting people into my space, that's, that's a little hard. And so Jesus is going to confront us about the need for hospitality. That believers who love Christ are going to walk in Christ's steps and are going to show this kind of love to others. Jesus is going to also confront us in the area of motivation. So, so when we do extend ourselves to, to welcome people into our space, when we do the right things, he's going to try to help us navigate how to do the right thing in the right way. Because Martha does the right thing. But, but Jesus has to confront her about it doing all the wrong way. So it's dangerous for us. Because it's going it's to call us to, to do a little evaluation in our heart. 
to make sure that we're, we're loving God by loving the people that God has put around us. So let's walk into this story. We're going to just take this piece by piece, beginning in verse 38, and we're going to see that Martha and Mary love Jesus. They, they love Jesus, and they're, they're pouring out their love to Jesus in the, in the way they know best. Let me read this for us. Verse 38 says, Now, as they went on their way, this is speaking about Jesus and his disciples and, and probably a group of individuals who are following after Jesus. It says, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. We're going to just look at Martha, then look at Mary, then look at Martha again. First of all, Martha showed hospitality. And I want to just lift this up for us because I want you to see that she extends herself in a really important way to communicate love to Christ. Verse 38 describes Jesus and his disciples that they're making their way into a village and we know that that village is Bethany. Bethany, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, on the eastern uh, slope of the Mount of Olives, probably overlooking the city. You could maybe even call this a suburb, as it were, of Jerusalem. And, and here they are, they're, they're walking into this village, and, and Martha is, is, in, is welcoming them into, into her home. This is the first time we're introduced to, to Martha and Mary. Probably the first encounter that they had with one another. And, and we know that, that, that this encounter would lead to, to really deep, intimate friendship between Jesus and this family. We'll see Jesus there at this same home in John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. We'll, we'll see Jesus in this home again in John chapter 12 as, as Jesus is, is fellowshipping with them just a couple of days before he is crucified. It's clear that, that this becomes the, the, the avenue for relationship and this intimacy and friendship that they experience with Christ. Martha is the one who takes initiative. It's important for us to realize that nothing that we're going to read in this passage would have happened with the, without Martha taking initiative. So, so all of the things that, that we're going to come around to towards the end of this, where, where Martha's going to be on the, on the back end of some confrontation from Christ, and, and Mary is commended because of her devotion to Christ, none of that would have been possible without Martha extending herself. She takes the first step. Martha, her, her name is the, a feminine form of the Aramaic word for Lord or Master, her name means mistress, which means that she was the, the female head of this home. In every account, her name is listed first. It's always Martha, Mary, and then Lazarus, which, which indicates or suggests that she's probably the, the oldest sibling of the three. And it helps us understand that, that the, the burden that, that Martha would have carried for this family, kind of this, this motherly uh, um, approach of love for her siblings, and, and certainly helps us appreciate why the death of, of her brother Lazarus would have been so, so difficult for her to handle. But this was her house. We see that Martha welcomed him into her house. The fact that Luke doesn't mention Lazarus kind of, kind of brings to the surf, surface kind of the, the cultural norms that Jesus was breaking by, by, by stepping into a home of two women. One commentator says that, that a woman... Um, has this position is somewhat unusual in the, in the Gospels. And it parallels the Samaritan's surprising response in the previous account 
That, that, that these two individuals, the Samaritan and, and Martha and Mary, kind of being set um, in front of us as examples of love would have been culturally unacceptable. But Jesus breaks ministry molds because Jesus is interested in heart. Jesus is interested in receptivity. So he walks into this situation. He's, he's willing to, to accept this invitation because he cares about individuals, not about social norms. Then we're introduced in verse 39 to Mary's devotion. Notice, it says, And she had a sister, speaking of Martha having a sister, called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary is the equivalent for the Hebrew, Miriam. It's a word that means bitter. It was a common name in the first century. We're, we're aware of, of other Marys in the New Testament. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene. Well, this is another Mary. Mary, the, the sister of Martha. These were bitter times in Israel. The Roman occupation, the, the Roman oppression that they were experiencing led to, to bitter times. But, but Mary is one who, who echoes a, a heart of faith. It's through her humility and devotion that we're going to see in overcoming uh, what could have been very bitter, very difficult times to see the sweetness of Jesus. And here we find Mary at Jesus' feet. That's her typical posture. That's the typical place that we find Mary, at Jesus' feet. Luke will introduce these two verses or two verbs to, to help describe her posture. First, she is sitting. She's sitting. It's a word used only here in the New Testament. It means to sit beside or to sit near. This was a typical posture for disciples. Disciples would usually sit before the rabbi, sit before the teacher. Uh, it was a posture of humility, a posture of reception, a posture of one who is, who is willing to be instructed. But, but the fact that Mary is sitting beside Jesus, it's a, it's a word that's only used here in the New Testament. It describes just kind of maybe some of the uncomfortable closeness that she as a woman had with, with, with Jesus in this instance. But as a place of humility and devotion and friendship. Mary was so interested in, in what Jesus had to say. And we'll find Mary at Jesus' feet again in John chapter 12, only this time. The week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Mary will be anointing Jesus' feet. She'll be washing his feet with her hair. This devotion and worship and adoration to Christ. But she's not just sitting, she's also listening. This listening is in a, in a mood that, that expresses continual listening. She was, she was glued. She was intent. She was fixed on what he said. Riveted to his words, hanging on every word. She, she couldn't get enough, just soaking it all in, enjoying and marveling at the words of Christ. No doubt Mary is experiencing the same wonder and amazement that we find early in the account of Christ, where in Luke chapter 4, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Mary is eating it up. She's hearing these life-giving words of Jesus, this truth that's coming from him. Now we find in verse 40, we find Martha's complaint. It said, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. 
Now, we don't know the specifics of, of the serving that Martha was doing, but we can find some clues in the text that, that help us kind of navigate what, what was going on here. First, we understand that she was distracted. Again, used only here in the New Testament. It, it means to be, to, be, to be drawn away, to be dragged away, to be preoccupied with, with cares and, and business. Whatever she was doing, this task was all-encompassing. We find her serving, the same word for serving we find here in Luke chapter 10, is the same word for serving we find of, of, of Martha again in John chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Here she is. She's serving again. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Uh, this service is obviously connected with hosting a meal. And all the work and all the effort that was related to that. And the word for serve is the word diakonas. This is the word we get deacon from. So she's deaconing Jesus here in Luke chapter 10. She's deaconing Jesus in John chapter 12. She had a heart of service. A heart that was given to ministry. Martha is probably preparing a meal. (laughs) It was customary that when you had an honored guest that you would, you would go all, all out for your honored guest and for his company. It's likely then that she would have been preparing a meal that would have been accompanied with either a lamb or a goat. Now, I want you to appreciate the, the difficulty of preparing that kind of meal in the first century. If she was going to serve a goat or a lamb, it would require the slaughter of that lamb or goat. It would, it would require the butchering of that lamb or goat. And then the, the cooking of that lamb or goat. It, it wasn't just a quick trip over to Meyer or, or a quick trip to Kroger to pick up some meat and then prepare it. And, and then you don't have a refrigerator. You don't have a stovetop. You don't have an oven. You don't have running water. You don't have a sink. You don't have a microwave. All of those modern conveniences that, that, that tend to make meal preparation easy for us, she had none of that. So can you begin to appreciate the challenge of what she's up against? Can you just imagine what it might be like to to cook a Thanksgiving meal for yourself and 13 guests plus your family all by yourself, starting from scratch? (laughs) Preparing this meal was a a big deal. It it was a major undertaking. And and the pressure is starting to mount (laughs) for Mary, for Martha. what, What began as joyful ministry has now turned into frustrated ministry. And and Martha also knows that that it was culturally inappropriate for a woman to be in the company of a man. And also culturally inappropriate for a woman to be receiving instruction from a rabbi. Doesn't Jesus understand? One commentator mentions this. He says, male space and female space were divided in the ancient world. And males and females usually did not intermingle, even in the home. In addition to this, Mary seems to be totally oblivious. She she is totally checked out. She doesn't see her sister in need. She is not fulfilling the second command of loving her neighbor as herself. Should she not understand that if she is going to love her sister, she should step in, she, could, she, she should be considerate, she should be a one who, who recognizes the burden and wants to help in some way? And so Martha does the unthinkable. 
she confronts the Lord. She demands that Jesus should know better and that Jesus would step in and fix and resolve the situation. Lord, do you not care? Oh my. Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And of course, we can understand. And I think Martha is feeling this way because the pressure has begun to build. And now the expression of love for Christ from Mary and Martha is is reflected now in Christ's love to these two. That's what we see next. Christ's love to Martha and Mary. It's It's really obvious, but Jesus accepts the invitation. Jesus accepts the invitation to dinner. And this is one of the first ways that Jesus will express love to Martha and Mary and Lazarus. I know it's pretty obvious, but when we think about Christ's ministry, we understand that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But there are many times in his ministry when Jesus allowed himself to be served. And in being served, he was serving those who were serving him. I think in some ways, it's harder for us. Isn't it harder for us to be served? Those Marthas among us, we like to be the ones to do the the ministry. We we like to be the ones who are helping others. We we, we like to be the ones who who are stepping in and providing a service and providing support. We really enjoy doing that, but, but it's really hard for us to accept ministry, right? Because when we accept ministry, we are admitting that we have a need. When we accept ministry, we're acknowledging our dependence on others in some way. When we accept ministry, it reveals that there is some weakness, some inadequacy, some deficiency in our life. And we don't like to admit that. At least, I don't like to admit that. But when Jesus steps in, he values his host by receiving the ministry that the host gives. It's a way for for Jesus to say, I need you. And I think a lot, of, a lot of us, we love to serve. It's a posture of humility that we have to accept in serving others. But what, what's good about us serving others is that it flows from strength to weakness. Our strength to their weakness. Our fullness to their deficiency. And, and, and for it to go the other direction is for us to admit that we have a need. And we don't want to go there. Many of us don't want to go there. We try not to receive help, but to not receive help really touches on pride in our life. I don't need your help. Well, maybe you should admit that you need help. Maybe there's some pride in your life that needs to be overcome. And we don't want to ask for help for the same reasons, because we don't want to admit that there's a weakness or inadequacy or deficiency in our life, that we need others. But it's quite remarkable that Christ humbled himself to receive ministry from others. And to receive it from two women who would have broken several cultural norms in the process. Jesus was willing to step into criticism, potential criticism for the sake of receiving ministry from these two ladies. Because he cared about heart. He cared about valuing these two women. Jesus prioritized relationship. 
In verse 41, we find that Jesus confronts Martha. <laughs> Martha has levied this uh, criticism. You don't care about me. Take care of business, Jesus. And so Jesus will lovingly confront Martha. This is, by the way, an expression of love. It's an expression of love to, to, to set the record straight, to, to set Martha's heart in the right direction. Because if she's going to serve, and she's going to serve again, but if she's going to serve the right way, she can only serve the right way if she's confronted in, in, the, in the way that she is stepping out of line. So Jesus will do this. He says this in verse 41. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away. Martha, Martha, he repeats her name as a means of em emphasis, but also tenderness. Can you hear the tenderness in the tone? Can you hear the, the directness in the tone? Martha, I'm talking to you. Martha, heads up, eyes up front. Look at me. You are anxious and trembled. This is, this is, a, this is a really great encouragement to, to Martha's like me. Jesus does not confront her ministry. He says, you are anxious and troubled. He doesn't confront her ministry. He confronts her heart. It wasn't that her ministry was wrong. It wasn't that her ministry wasn't necessary or helpful. It was that her heart was in the wrong place while she was serving. People did need to eat. And Martha had created this welcoming environment. And Jesus and his disciples were, were finally able to rest. That was really good. But her heart was out of place. She was anxious, which means that she was stressed out. She was concerned over temporal things. She was worried about the here and now. She was so bent out of shape over the things that, that were good but not essential. She allowed her heart to get wrapped up over the ministry and, and, and frustrated with, with Mary for not helping. You know, she's doing the right thing. And, and doesn't Mary see that, that she should be helping? But she's also troubled, which means that she's distracted. She's upset. She's bothered. She's exasperated by, by Mary's lack of attentiveness, her supposed in, um, uh, just not being uh, um, sympathetic to where Mary was or Martha was. Jesus is essentially saying, Martha, lighten up. It, it's okay. We're, we're going to stick around. We're, we're not in a hurry. This is great to get some breath of fresh air. Just go about your ministry and do it with the right heart. We'll be here when it's done. It's okay. Take a breath. How is it that we can do all the right things and do them in all the wrong ways? <laughs> you find yourself like me in this situation? Jesus commends Mary. That's what we find in verse 42. He confronts Martha but commends Mary. He says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. One thing is essential. Love for God is primary. Relationship is the most important thing you can pursue. Martha, what you're doing is good, but what Mary do, is doing is better. Mary has chosen what is best. She's not distracted. She's not anxious. She's not troubled. 
Mary has prioritized worship and fellowship and relationship and worship of God. Mary's example shows us what matters most in hospitality. Not just the service, not the cleanest house, not everything put together, not kids that are, that are well-behaved and, and, and orderly, not, not, not a food that's, that's prepared in, in all the best ways, but it's the relationship. It's the fellowship that, that we can engage in as we invite people into our, into our homes, into our space. And of course, pointing them to love for God, which is ultimate. Helping them in that relationship to, to love God and to think about him. So now that we've looked at the passage, let's, let's take a step back and, and, and evaluate this passage for ourselves. How important is hospitality? We come back to the question we started with. How important is hospitality? And as we look through the New Testament, what we're going to see is the hospitality becomes the, the key strategy for everything in the Christian life, for discipleship and for relationship and for outreach. And that's what we're going to look at first is hospitality and discipleship. I think I have had to have my perspective of discipleship totally reconfigured. Because when I have thought about discipleship, I have often thought about imparting knowledge, uh, of preparing somebody for a, for a task, for, for giving them a resource, for helping them with a skill, for, for helping them to fulfill a, a, a particular task or duty that they're assigned to fulfill. But when Jesus thinks about discipleship, that, that is just the, that is the, the, the final destiny, but, but it has to go through the pathway of relationship. That, that every discipling relationship has to begin with fellowship. That is the foundation, the context for discipleship in the New Testament. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 is evidence of that. This is speaking of Jesus, it says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. My discipleship is always the second base. I want to get to the sending part, so I'll do whatever I can to equip them for the task without sharing in relationship. That's what needs to come first. Relationship and fellowship must precede sending, discipleship. Christ he was intent to be with his disciples. And he was intent for his disciples to be with him. It wasn't about imparting a message and imparting truth. It was, he was intent on imparting a life himself. So it was life on life. It was day by day. There was teaching. But there's also traveling and fishing in healing and serving and camping and praying and sitting and eating. All of these things which encompass the, the discipling ministry of Christ. He's, he's creating a culture. He's creating friends. He's helping them understand what he's all about so they can represent him faithfully and adequately. So that when John will write about what Jesus did, we find in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have touched, uh, excuse me, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, just pause for a moment. What does that sound like? <laughs> it sounds like life-on-life -life relationship. 
We touched him. We saw him. We heard him. He was there. We were present with him. That's what it's all about. Not just the imparting of knowledge, but the imparting of life. And that's what now John and the disciples will impart to others. So the life was manifest. We have seen it and we testify uh, to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That same life of Christ that was with us, we now give to you. The life on life discipleship must continue. And here's the result we find in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. It's all about relationship. That is the context for everything else in the Christian life. The foundation for discipleship, the foundation for ministry outside our homes into communities happens through fellowship. So if we aren't with people, if we aren't enjoying life together, talking with one another, fellowshipping with one another, eating together, playing together, serving together, then we're not enjoying the Christian life as God designed it. If fellowship is not a component that is vibrant and active and consistent in your life, then we're missing what Jesus came to accomplish in bringing us together. And we're not fulfilling the Great Commission as God intended because if the Great Commission included discipleship, which, which a, a key component of that was relationship, then we're not doing discipleship God's way either. We're made for fellowship. We're made for relationship. And, and those of us who are introverts, we have no excuse. And those of us who don't have the gift of hospitality, then we just... We just we either marry somebody who does have the gift of hospitality, which is what I did. That makes it very easy for me. Or, or you come to, to put yourself in community with others who are hospitable. You learn from them. That's what the body's about. It's a great part of, of, of why God put us together. You, you, you couple your weakness with somebody else's strength. We must understand that while programs are important, they are not the main event people are. If we win people with a program independent of relationship, we run the risk of winning them to the wrong gospel. So how can we, how can we grow? How can we cultivate this? First, I want to encourage you to capitalize on Sunday morning. We have kind of designed, kind of built into the fabric of our ministry, a way for there to be space so you can build relationship with one another. We have connect groups that are happening at nine. If you're not a part of a connect group, can I please encourage you to, to do that? They're happening. And it's, the, the format of it is, is built for relationship, which, which means that, that, that you're, you're, it's designed in a way that they're interactive so that you can share what, what, what God is, is leading you to learn in the study of the scripture, and you can share it with others and learn from others. We also have about an hour between services, and that's by design. Again, that's so that there can be some, some cross-pollinization, uh, some, some friendships and fellowship that is happening between services and, and with one another. And, and then I would encourage you, there are a lot of you that are sticking around for a long time after the service. Most Sundays, I don't leave until about 2 o'clock because there's so many good conversations that are happening. Take advantage of that. 
Take advantage of, of Sunday morning to build relationship. Second, consider setting aside Memorial Day. There's going to be four days, Thursday to Monday. We're going to go down to Tennessee. We're going to go to a church that does fellowship really well. It's built in to the ministry. And we can go down and we can participate with them in ministry. We can see how they do it. We can support them, encourage them, and and, and learn from them in the process. And if you're a single or you're a couple or you're a family, you can all come. And I, I would encourage you, as many of us who are able to go, to go down the Memorial Day weekend and, and see what, what does it look like to be a church that has built this into the fabric of their ministry. Finally, hospitality and outreach. If we're to follow Christ's strategy, if we're to emulate his heart for relationship, if we're to capitalize on the opportunities that that are already built into culture, meaning God designed us to be relational beings, okay? And this becomes a great way for us to engage those who don't know Christ. Is we, we, we use what, what God has already built into the fabric of our DNA in wanting relationship, we extend that relationship to the people around us, whether in our workplace, in, in our schools, or, or even in our communities, and you extend that to them, and you welcome them into a friendship, and, and pray that God will take it to the next level. We have, we have built an acronym called BLESS. It's over here on my left, BLESS. And it's an acronym, it just stands for, for uh, five different activities that I would encourage you to do. Uh, over the next several months. First, begin to pray. Begin to pray for, for the people that God has put in your life who do not know Jesus. If anything is going to happen in their heart, it's going to happen because God has activated the truth in their life. He has activated the seed in that soil. He's opened their eyes uh, from the blindness that they're, that they're undergoing because of Satan's, the blindness of Satan, God is opening their hearts to see the gospel and to be receptive to it. Pray that God will do a work. Second, is the word is L. Uh, listen to them. Learn to ask good questions. Take an interest in their life. Ask them about their family, about their work, about their hobbies. Show them that you care about them as an individual. Take an interest in, in the things that are going well and the things that are not going so well. So you can show an interest in them as an individual. The, the word, the letter E stands for eat with them. Whether that's coffee, whether that's s'mores over a campfire, whether that's a lunch or a dinner, find a, a time to engage your neighbors in, in a really personal way. Invite them over to your house. Have a meal with them. S, the first S is the word for serve. Find a way to serve your neighbors. Do, do, do tangible things. Help move furniture. Help uh, paint part of their house, um, shovel the sidewalk, rake the leaves, clean the gutters, uh, weed the garden, whatever it takes to to be in their space and and to show them that you care about them in in a really tangible way through ministry. This is what Jesus does throughout the entire New Testament or the, the gospel records. Jesus is serving the people in front of him. And finally, share the gospel. When they return the question, so tell me, What is the most important thing to you? Tell me, what is it about your life that makes you different? Now you have this golden opportunity to share with them about Jesus Christ and to share the gospel.
And, and I would encourage you, if you have not done this for a while, um, make sure that your testimony, which, which becomes a, a really great entry point for the gospel, in sharing your story with them, uh, make sure that story is, is punctuated by the gospel and, and work on your testimony so that you can, you can take advantage of this final step of sharing the gospel. Oh God, we thank you for the example of Martha and Mary. Thank you for them inviting uh, Jesus into their home. Lord, help us to understand the significance of hospitality. Help us to be able to move beyond the things that are uncomfortable and to be able to embrace the things you've called us to for the sake of, uh, of growing the body of Christ and for the sake of winning others to the gospel of Christ. Thank you for this time this morning. Uh, Bless us this week as we seek to carry out these initiatives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.